Let me have you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. That's going to be the text that I want to share from. And we begin this morning where we should begin with the word hope. And hope is huge. And so I used a massive font for this. Think about it. With hope, you can endure. And without hope, you actually die. You die a little bit from the inside each day. Where does hope come from? And where is it that we turn to for help? Help and hope are kind of tied together, aren't they? Help and hope are seen actually side by side in the scriptures regularly. Everyone you know is looking for this. A man approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. He asked the boy in the dugout, what's the score? The boy responded, 18 to nothing. We're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I bet you're discouraged. Why should I be discouraged, replied the little boy. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. (laughs) It's amazing that children have this like naive capacity for hope, don't they? And here's what's even more amazing is Jesus didn't condemn that. He didn't belittle that. In fact, he encouraged that, that we ought to be childlike in our faith. Hope captures what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. I was driving to church this morning. I said to my son, Eli, I said, you know, one of my hopes for you is just that your regular practice would be not that you go to church on Easter Sunday and serve your church family on Easter Sunday alone, but that you do that every Sunday. And that's what he does. Every Sunday morning, he's up with me, and we're here doing that. That's just a regular thing that Christians get to practice every single week. In fact, it's sort of a pillar of our week, isn't it? We look forward to Sunday. We springboard off of Sunday, and it sort of is this rhythm that we celebrate hope. We're reminded of hope. We're reminded of where our help comes from. Hope is common to all because we all need it. Think about this. Hope implies brokenness. Hope implies messiness laziness. Hope implies that we're losing 18 to zero. Check out our stories. From comic books to TV to movies to literature, we long for a savior. We love the story where we're down and out and help comes at the last second. Were we in total control If we had it all together, I look pretty together, don't I, today? Once in a while, it comes out, everyone's like, you look really good, implying that for 51 other weeks, eh. (laughs) Look, we'll listen to you because you're preaching the Bible. But honestly, if we had it all together, if if we were all put together, we wouldn't need hope. We wouldn't long for a Savior. In fact, the starting point for being saved is recognizing that you need it. Jesus said it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're rich in this life and not poor in spirit, you've got a kingdom you're building here. You aren't looking for and you will not receive a kingdom from elsewhere. So where does your hope rest? Think about your hope meter for a second. Anyone paying extra attention to the gas gauge uh, these days? I'm really aware of it at all times. Where's your hope meter? Is it, is it filled up? Is today just a top off? Or do you feel like you're running on empty? Do you feel like it's getting kind of dangerously close to being running out? If your hope depends on hustle, then it depends on our effort and our smarts and our timing. 
There's a certain kind of mindset that never rests because it all rests on us. If your hope is on medicine, then think about this. You're, you're waiting for that phone call. You're waiting for that next report. You're putting hope in treatment, but if that treatment doesn't work for some reason, you are utterly devastated, not just for yourself, but for those around you. If your hope is on pleasure, each post-vacation letdown, and there is a post-vacation letdown, it becomes more intolerable, doesn't it? We sort of build up to the weekend. We build up to something we're looking forward to. We build up to the next event, to the next vacation, to whatever we're looking forward to. And honestly, it never quite delivers. If that's where our hope and help comes from, it will not last. How about money? If your hope is on money, you're robbed of all that is most valuable in life. You end up serving a horrible master, a horrible master who never pays out as he promises. Christians turn to God. That's what we do. We turn to God for our hope and our help. But even this gets confusing. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and what? A future. I don't have any scientific data on this, but I think this might be one of the most memorized, quoted, printed, posted Old Testament verses. We love hearing about the gifts of our Creator. Plans to prosper and not to harm? Something about a hope and a future? Yes, please. A double portion, Lord. We, we kind of lean in and listen carefully and, re- and remember and memorize and quote and rehearse in our minds things that seem to please us and things that seem to be really good for us. This seems to be really, really great. But how quick we are to listen and remember parts that suit us, but we ignore, minimize, or deny altogether words that we either don't understand or don't like. Same good creator, same gift giver, but selective hearing. God's version of what a hope and a future look like almost always surprise us, don't they? In fact, if we're honest, often God's version of a hope and a future disappoints us. Often we pray for Egypt, and what does God answer? He answers with a wilderness. And we just go, what's up, God? And not just a year, but year after year after year. So why is that? I'm calling this morning Future Hope. And here's the central line is, is from a book I read a few months ago by Tim Keller. A really good book. I think it's called Hope in Times of Fear and Suffering. And he said something that really, really struck me. It just sort of like lodged in my brain. I've been mulling on it for months. I thought, man, this would make a great Easter sermon. So here it is. That the resurrection not only provides hope for the future, I think the way most of us normally think about it, it's hope for the future someday, but the resurrection also provides hope from the future. That implies that my present life right now is being helped by the hope that already exists in the future. This is going to hurt your brain a little bit this morning, especially the 9 a.m. crowd. Way to go, 9 a.m. crowd. We're not the 6 a.m. sunrise service church. Just saying. We're the 9 a.m. It's sunrise somewhere. Maybe in Hawaii it's sunrise service. But we're here. We're going to bend our brain a little bit. God is outside of space and time and matter, right? And so the beginning and the end is seen by him. 
So the resurrection, the, the, the Christian's hope is the resurrection, and it provides not only hope for the future, but hope from the future. And that's a really mind-altering but important and powerful truth, and I want to show it to you in the scriptures today. Let me define hope because I think we all have different thoughts and ideas about it. The first definition here, this is directly from Webster's Dictionary, a thing that used to be a big deal, now it's just online, um, but it's a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. Many people thinking about hope, think of hope in, in that one way. I don't know the technical uh, formalities here, but maybe some of you English majors can help me out with this later. Um, but that sounds an awful lot like wishing for something, right? You blow out your candles, you make a wish. You, you wish for something to come true. You wish this or that. So wishfulness and hopeful thinking can often be sort of equated, especially if you leave it just at that opening definition, a feeling or a desire. Just by actual show of hands, anyone have your feelings change over this last week about something? Okay. Yeah, if we went back a month, a year, like all over the map, if we could Richter scale your emotions, they're all over the place. How about your desires? Same thing. Our, my desires are all over the place. Super untrustworthy. Certainly wouldn't want to build a life on my desires and my feelings. Certainly wouldn't want to build it on yours. No offense. <laughs> Number two, a person or thing that may help or save someone. Now we're starting to get closer to a Christian picture of what hope is, where my hope is. It's this third one I'm going to drive home this morning, though. Grounds for believing that something good may happen. Do you see a difference between number three and number one? Number one is based on feeling or a desire. Number three is based on some sort of evidence. Are there grounds to build on? Is there something firm and stable that won't move? that I'm building my hope on, that my expectation of something good happening would be that. Well, of course, for a Christian, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead is our hope. That event is our grounds as Christians that something good will happen. The resurrection is hope for the future, but it is also hope from the future. I want you to look at Romans 8 with me, a fantastic chapter of the Bible loaded with amazing stuff. We're going to jump down to verse 18. And what I've done is this. Embedded in the text on the screen is my reading of it that is kind of shedding light on this is looking back on the past, things that have already happened. This is talking about the present, and this is talking about the future. Okay, so what we'll get to see is kind of this past, present, future narrative kind of flowing out of Romans 8. It reads as follows. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's in the future. For the creation waits with eager longing right now for the revealing of the sons of God which will happen. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Hear the future in that? Keep going. Verse 22, 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's the past right up until now, into the present. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, future. For in this hope we were saved, past. Now, presently, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do see, and we wait for it with patience. Here is help and hope for our present times. No matter what you are enduring today or what you are enjoying today, two sides of the spectrum of the human experience, it doesn't compare with what's to come. If you're enduring something, don't lose heart. Something far greater is coming. If you're enjoying something, don't make it an idol. It will disappoint you. It's not an ultimate thing. Something far greater is coming. It's a mere pointer to what's to come. You know, pain tends to reveal what we really think, not just what we say we think. We had like a year and a half of pain where we all got bumped and whatever was inside sort of spilled out of us. We couldn't even stop it. There was some ugly stuff, wasn't there? In our own lives, in our homes, in our community, in our nation, in our world, pain reveals what we really think, not just what we say we think. This passage, like so many other places in Scripture, attach purpose to our pain and thereby give us hope to carry on and endure. It's a woman in labor who's sweating, breathing, screaming in pain, but the end makes it more tolerable. In fact, it makes it enjoyable. All right, ladies, did I go too far? I've never done this. It's not like experiential, but maybe not enjoyable, but but certainly endurable, right? Why? Because we hope for the future. You don't know for sure what's going to happen or else you wouldn't hope for it. You don't hope for, for something you already are holding in your arms, but you endure through that. It's a perfect picture of what we see in our life. So our help and our hope is both now and not yet. And it's really all based on this one historical fact. Jesus, who was killed was raised from the dead. The term is resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the central theme of the Bible. In fact, I would take it further. It's actually the central turning point in all of human history. If this goes away, everything falls apart. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, that's the resurrection we're talking about, then all of our preaching is useless And your faith is useless. We might say that all of our eggs, all of our Easter eggs are in this basket. This goes away and everything we're doing right here is a farce. Waste of time. Go get in line for brunch somewhere. Beat the crowd. You might be saying, but this is really hard to believe. Let me say plainly that the biblical witness on the resurrection is unflinching. It is not metaphor. It is not a spiritual resurrection. The historical evidence is profound. Jesus of Nazareth really did live and cause quite a stir. Jesus of Nazareth really did die at the hands of Roman executioners. 
You say, well, that's still hard to believe, even if there's historical data behind it. You know, it's not new if you find this hard to believe. The original followers of Jesus doubted. Mark chapter 16, 12 says this. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Luke 24, 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. These are not the enemies of Jesus. These are the followers of Jesus. In John 20, it says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, uh, in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Don't ever believe the nonsense that of course people in the past believed him because they believed in fairy tales. False. That's simply not true. That's the arrogance of the present times, looking back on the past as if somehow they were vastly different from ourselves. Not true. Thomas gets a little title attached to his name called Doubting Thomas, right? Heard heard of Doubting Thomas? Maybe he was the most emphatic of all, but really every one of his followers had a hard time believing. Why is this? Well, I did some research into the Greek and Aramaic, sort of the original languages of the scriptures, um, and I got some insight. Here's what it is. It's because dead people don't live again. That's why. That's why it's hard to believe. It's hard for you to believe. It was hard for them to believe. We've seen the Lord. Nonsense. I watched him die, and dead people stay dead. No matter what language you speak, no matter what kind of food you eat, where you live from, what time frame you live in, dead people stay dead. Consider the original disciples. They had put their hope in a Jewish rabbi. Their hope turned to confusion, and then it downgraded into despair. And now they were being told that there was hope in Jesus again? Wouldn't you be skeptical? Fool me once. You don't want to put your hope in that again and say, man, I've been down that road before. But new information has come upon the scene. They're hesitant, they're suspicious, they're unconvinced. Maybe that's you today. I want you to hear clearly that blind faith and baseless hope is never the way of Jesus. Is it a life of faith where you don't have all the answers? Yes. By God's design and glory, yes. A resounding yes. But blind faith, baseless hope, never. It's not the way of Jesus. We've been left firm ground to stand on. After all, remember, if this isn't true, this is all worthless. My preaching, your listening, our faith. Paul's faith in the resurrection is based on reason and evidence that at the time of him speaking and being before governors and all of this was widely known. If you know how to get there quickly, turn to Acts uh, 26. And in Acts 26, what we see is Paul, massive opponent to the Christian way, visited by the risen Jesus, complete turnaround of worldview in a moment. Now staunch defender of the Christian faith, no matter what kind of persecution you throw at him. Acts chapter 26, verse 24. 
He's before Festus, a leader in the community. It says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Why? Because Paul's talking about the resurrection. What's the resurrection? Dead people living again. Nonsense. Paul, stop it. Listen to Paul's response in verse 25. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Friends, what he's talking about is evidence, empirical, knowable evidence. It hasn't been done in a corner. It's out in the plain open for everyone to see. King Festus, I know you know about these things. So he boldly proclaims. Let me just give you two lines of evidence this morning. We're not going to spend a ton of time in this. This is really worth looking into. It's life-altering for many people. Number one is that the tomb was empty. As you dig into this, and every few years or so, I dig back into stuff. Both opponents of Christianity today and proponents of Christianity today agree on this one fact, that there was an empty tomb. The whole Christian myth, if that's what it was, would have been debunked very, very quickly and easily if they simply provided a body. That the tomb was empty after Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross at the hands of Roman executioners is beyond dispute amongst all the scholars who study such things. That's profound. But beyond the empty tomb, the massive numbers of people across a diverse segment of society that claimed to have seen the risen Jesus is staggering. There's an apologist named Peter Williams, and he gives the list. I won't give the scripture references because it would take much of the rest of my time. But consider the following. Jesus appeared after he had been killed publicly, buried for three days. Jesus appeared alive again in Judea, in Galilee, in town, in the countryside, indoors, outdoors, in the morning, in the evening, with other people by prior appointment, with people with no prior appointment. Jesus appeared close. Jesus appeared distant. Jesus appeared on a hill by a lake. Jesus appeared to groups of men. Jesus appeared to groups of women. Jesus appeared to individuals. Jesus appeared to groups of up to 500 people at one time. Jesus appeared sitting, standing, walking, eating. And always Jesus was having conversations Personal conversations, public declarations. When I say the Bible is unflinching in talking about Jesus bodily raising from the dead, that's what I'm talking about. 
That's not a ghost. That's not an imagination. That's not metaphorical. That's not meant to be taken as sort of mushy. That's historical fact. The resurrection of Jesus is reliable, uh, is a reliable historical fact. In fact, to not deal with the question ought to stir up a whole bunch of other questions in a person. Why would you bury your head like an ostrich in the sand to not dig into this one fact that seems to have transformed the lives of so many around the world for more than 2,000 years? Even with all of that, though, people ask a very valid question. What does this event have to do with me? That is a great question. Jesus Christ isn't a force, a concept, or a philosophy. Jesus Christ is a person. He appeared to his friends, ate with them, spoke with them, showed off his wounds to them. You channel a force, you discuss a concept, you subscribe to a philosophy. What do you do to a person? You relate. Jesus is seeking a relationship with you. The life of hope is found in a relationship with the risen Jesus Christ. Now, the ministry and mission of Jesus, who he was, why he was here, what he was up to, is widely misunderstood even by those sitting in a church on Sunday, even by self-professed Christians, widely misunderstood. I'm not sure what you've heard or think about Christians, but let me offer, offer a humble summary, okay? This is really hard to do. When you think about sort of the book of the Bible and sort of what was Jesus' ministry and mission, let me give it to you in a few short minutes. We learn this, first of all, that we're all in the same boat. And by all, I mean every single person in humanity. We're all in the same boat and it's sinking. People um, have baggage, junk, hangups, growth points. The Bible calls it sin. We like to dress it up with all kinds of different names. We are all sinners. That's the same boat that we're in. Christians live aware of this and ready to do something about it. Number two, boy, this doesn't happen with paper. Once in a while you touch your iPad and it goes flying to a different direction. Here we go. Uh, Number two is this. We have the same need. Every person's in the same boat. Every person has the same need. Because of sin, and again, there's lots of variety to sort of the, the root, or to the, I would say branches, but not to the root. We have a common root called sin. We all have the same basic needs. Forgiveness, freedom, resurrection from our own dead places, strength to carry on. The word grace is not getting what we do deserve because of our sin and getting what we don't deserve. The reason a Christian can never get over the word grace, the reason why it chokes them up unexpectedly, even though they sing the same songs that they've sung since they were a kid, a single line can choke us up and just catch in our throat. It's because we have this deep understanding It really is good news. In fact, we look at Good Friday and why it's called good. It's good because every bruise, every drop of blood, every mocking word that Jesus endured that day was an exchange. He took sin's punishment 
instead of me. I got his righteousness for free. Finally, the same Savior is found in a relationship with Jesus. Not a church, not a belief system, not a higher power or morality. None of those kinds of things takes away your shame, does it? You're left with it. You're left dirty and stained. Jesus alone is able to overcome the power of sin. We just sang it. Our resurrected king is resurrecting me. Because Jesus the leader goes first, we can follow in his footsteps. Peter boldly preaching to the very ones who just crucified Jesus said this in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you know that for all of humanity, placing our trust in Jesus Christ yields the same result? What's the result? Well, there are really many, but let me give you a couple. We're saved from sin. That means that we are free to live as a forgiven part of God's family. We no longer need to accept our sin. We no longer need to manage our sin or deny our sin. But we are victoriously free to put it to death. It died with Jesus on the cross. So we are freed from our sin. We're also saved from death. Death is an enemy and death is a punishment for sin. Because Jesus died for the punishment of sin, Puritan John Owen was right when he said this, and we just sang it. He calls it the death of death. Jesus put to death death. By trusting Jesus, we're gifted eternal life. Some of you know this, but my father finished really well. My father was the godliest person I think I've ever met and been around. And I know because I was there holding his hand when he took his very last breath. And he finished really the way that he lived his life. Thankful, praise, and love for his Savior was on his lips. My dad breathed his last on a Sunday. Wasn't lost on me that my dad breathed his last on the day Jesus rose from the grave. The reality of my dad, um, and this was true, this was so comforting in especially the days and weeks after, after he passed from this life, is that it was lodged in my brain, my dad is alive and well. And that's a massive understatement. My dad's doing great. Right now, my dad's doing amazing. So I'm left to grieve appropriately so. Even though I know my dad's alive and well, I'm left to grieve. That's the enemy that death is. But death is conquered. So here's what's amazing. We serve a risen Jesus. Is Jesus alive and well? Say yes. He's doing great. I can assure you. Because Jesus is doing great. Everyone who dies in the Lord is doing amazing. So don't grieve for them. It's okay to grieve for yourself. It's okay to grieve the memories. It's okay to grieve what what isn't here on earth. Finally, we're saved from God's wrath and hell. What we see on the cross is a preview 
of the punishment of sin. God's punishment, which people don't like to talk about, again, we want to hear about God's hope and future and his prosperity and all that, right? Comes with a package. God of love, God of wrath. Same God. God's punishment is repeatedly mentioned in both the Old and New Testament. Many people uh, find it difficult to say, how could a loving God send someone to hell? I think what you ought to marvel at is just play the game from the other side of the fence. Marvel at how a holy God could ever allow a guilty sinner into heaven. You change the picture and it changes it, doesn't it? God has to be totally just. God is totally loving. That's how it fits together. But really, you don't try to figure out grace like that. You just receive it and you walk in it. Some of you are thinking, okay, now he's getting preachy. Let me caution you. Don't stop listening just because someone gets preachy. Think about physical rescue. We get physical rescue, right? If your house is on fire, you love it when Jim Cook shows up. Right? You want a fireman showing up. They've got gear. They've got experience. They're going to go towards the fire. Someone's breaking into your house. You want the police. You're having a heart attack. You want a doctor around. You're drowning. A lifeguard? Yes. Please. The urgent need of a Savior is so evident physically, but it's also deeply pressing and urgent spiritually. Right now, today, our need for a Savior If you were shouting at someone to reach out for the life ring, and they accused you of being preachy, would that bother you much? No. You'd keep trying to give them the life ring. It's okay to be called preachy in that moment. You'd live with that. By the way, if you have a sudden urge to use the restroom, there's water running. Let's just acknowledge it together. Here's... Here's the joyful thing. We have some baptisms happening this morning, several baptisms this morning, and it's an amazing thing. So we're excited about that. So just let it run. If you need to slip out, you can pretend it's a phone call, but we'll all know. All right. If I'm going to get accused of being preachy, I'll tell you what I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach grace. I'm never going to get away from grace. Hell and punishment are part of the package. You've already heard about it. I will not shy away from that. Again, the good news makes no sense unless you understand the bad news. I will never shy from declaring the whole truth as far as I'm able. But man, I'm going to keep coming back to grace. What you need to know, what gives us all hope is grace. I want to point your attention to two followers of Jesus right around the Easter story in the scriptures. They run in opposite directions when they're confronted with their sin. Think about you. You're confronted with a failure with a weakness, with a growth point. Let's just call it sin. You failed, and you continue to fail. What do you do? Judas, conniving, scheming, betraying Judas, faces his sin, runs from Jesus, and kills himself. Hope slowly eats away from the inside, killing you little by little. little. Sometimes it explodes physically in suicide. That's Judas. Peter, Bold, overconfident, denying Peter is faced with his sin. What does he do? He runs to Jesus. Read it. He actually swims to Jesus. Jesus is on the beach and he calls to him. Jesus can't even wait. Pulls a forest gump and jumps right off the boat. I've got to get to my master. 
Two different followers of Jesus, both faced with their sin, both runners. Here's the point. We are all running. We are running right now away from God, deeper into sin and hopelessness and despair. Or we are running towards the Savior. Awareness of sin leads to death or life, despair or hope. Let this morning be a reminder to say your prayers. Say your prayers like you did when you were a kid. I love to pray with children. I get to do it a lot around my house. Kids have no formulas, no cliches. There's no embarrassment. They just tell God how they're actually feeling. I love this prayer from Anita, age 11. She says, Dear Jesus, I want to thank you for going up there on the cross for us every Good Fridays. You must be real happy when the weekend is over. Thanks, Anita. Let me say in your prayers, don't be limited by adult vocabulary. Kids don't know really that many words, and so they rely on all kinds of other forms of communication. But you can't miss what they're saying. My house is filled with hugs, squeals, laughter, screaming, winks, squeezes, hopping, skipping, dancing, and even silence. You know it's not necessary to communicate in my home a big vocabulary. Big impressive words, not needed. You know also about children, they ask for help. Some of you parents are exhausted by this right now. Don't be. It's going to go away. But children have no problem asking for help. We tend to put this off as long as possible. Some of us are are allergic to the admission of need. We feel humiliated by our weakness. But think about kids. They freely and routinely admit they are in way over their head. Sometimes they have no words for it, so they do this. What is this? This is a universal sign of, help! Pick me up! Change my situation! Come to me! If this doesn't work, what do they do? They add noise to it. (laughs) Mommy, would you please come help me? I'm in trouble. Never does it come out that way. Comes out in all kinds of different things, and the urgency is based on the pitch. Let me invite the band to come on up. Church, today might be sort of a reminder for you. Prodigals simply lose their way and put their hope in other things. If that's you, here's my plea to you. Come back. The Father's waiting with open arms. Maybe for some of you this morning is a siren. It's an alarm clock. Sinners pridefully think they have no need of God. If today's an alarm clock for you, the answer is quite simply, wake up. Wake up to this. Face your sin. Face your shame. Face your hope meter that just keeps going down. Finally, maybe for some of you, today is a relief. Sinners and saints who finally understand the amazing grace of God. If that's you today, Christian already, or that's you today, non-Christian seeker, I would say simply receive. The life of Jesus is an invitation to follow me, Jesus Christ. Receive what I have to offer. All this 
saving from sin, all this newness of life, it's yours in abundance. What we're going to do right now places one more piece to this idea of hope for the future, but also hope that's from the future invading our present so that we don't lose heart. We're going to celebrate communion. And many times in communion, rightfully, we look back. We look back on the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. That's really appropriate. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But remember, Jesus is alive and well. So while it's appropriate to look back, it's also really appropriate during communion to joyfully look forward. How cool on an Easter Sunday morning to think back to Good Friday, where this room was a lot darker and the mood was a lot more somber, appropriately so. But here it is on Easter morning, bright, colorful balloons bright, glorious morning that we've been given. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as I read this, guys, you can come forward and pass the elements. Take the elements, hold them, and during the next song, I would just invite you to take the cracker, take the juice at your leisure. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, That the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's the back-looking part, the remembrance Now listen to this very next sentence as it shifts shifts to future hope. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Churches, we celebrate communion. Let it be a joyful, smile-on-your-face celebration as you realize that doing this This remembering Jesus is actually a proclamation that we have hope from the future that affects our today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that worship includes taste and touch, sight and smell. God, this morning we taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a sense, Jesus, that as we Remember you breaking the bread and handing it out to your confused, worried disciples. And as they drank the cup together, that your broken body and your spilled blood was concerning to say the least. And yet here, God, we get to take these elements and by way of proclamation, by way of participation, each of us in the redeemed community of Christians join with the worldwide Christian church and we just proclaim Our hope is that you're coming again. It's certain, it's true, it's unchanging as much as the past is unchanging. You will never not die on the cross. That's firm and secure and sure, and we build on that. God, we celebrate you today in the taking of the bread and the juice. Amen.